guys. Welcome back to Into the Light, a different life story. My show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview. I've got Rick Capriola here. Rick is a man who I wanted to have on my show for a while because he has written a beautiful book, The Addicted Child, with which he tries to educate and demystify addiction, especially in the adolescent, in the youth, which is so important. I keep saying that again and again, addiction starts when we are young. It starts with the trauma uh, in, in childhood and as adolescents. And if we could just get them early and are able to, to turn their lives around, how beautiful would that be? But we can only do so by educating the caregivers, the, the teachers, the parents, the, the loved ones that are out there and are touching the lives of these, these precious young, young, young humans, if we can just make a difference. Oh. And Rick has been doing exactly that for the better part of a quarter of a century. So Rick, welcome to my show. Thank you for the hard work you've been doing. And let's, let's learn from you what drove you and what are you doing and what are your recommendations for people who are struggling with youngsters who are going off the rails. Thank you so much for inviting me to the program. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and talk about this issue, which affects so many families around the world, this subject of adolescent substance abuse. And really working with so many parents is what drove me to want to write this book, this resource for parents so that they would have the information to, to, to feel more confident about this topic, to feel like they, they, they know a little bit more about it, so that if they're confronted with this issue, they have a roadmap, so to speak, of what to do, where to go, uh, what type of assessments to get done, and what treatment options are available. So thank you for inviting me to the program and giving me an opportunity to talk about this new resource for parents and, and really anyone interested in adolescent substance abuse. And indeed, I mean, if you look worldwide, the scope of addiction is just tremendous. I mean, the figures in the UK, for example, they do every year, they do a, a large study, see what the, the what people are doing. And if you look at the age group of 18 to 24, consistently over the last 20 years, 10% of the people interviewed admitted to taking class A drugs in the last year. Now that's one in 10 people are shooting up heroin, snorting cocaine, taking speed, those kind of things. So these are figures, and these are the figures that people admit to. You could argue that there is a, a, a large undercurrent of, of people who, who obviously don't say, don't admit to what they're doing. Um, what is the scope in, in America? What is, in which area of America are you? I'm located in uh, the southern part of mm. the United States, uh, uh, just outside of Houston, Texas. Right. Um, I relocated here from the central part of the country to uh, take a position with Menninger Clinic in Houston, mm. Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital where I worked for over a decade as an addictions counselor for both uh, adolescents and adults. But in this country, uh, what we're seeing is adolescents still being attracted to alcohol alcohol and marijuana. Those are the two primary substances that, that I've seen kids being able to use. Mm. There is some exposure in some use to the more hardcore drugs like LSD 
over-the-counter prescription drugs like Ritalin and Adderall. Mm -hmm. But those percentages in comparison to alcohol and marijuana mm -hmm. are, are much, much lower. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but what we have seen, uh, which is rather new in the last few years, is a tremendous increase in, in vaping substances like marijuana and mm -hmm. nicotine. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, three years ago, uh, the number of, of, of kids that were vaping a substance like marijuana, seniors, for example, was, was, nine, was around 9%. Today, it's closer to 22%. So it's gone from 9% to 22% in just three years. And when we look at nicotine, the number of, of, of seniors that were uh, vaping nicotine three years ago was around 18%. Today, it's closer to 34%. So there's been a tremendous surge in adolescents turning to what we know as vaping uh, substances like marijuana and nicotine. It's sort of uh, running wild. What the heck? What the heck? Yeah. Um, so here we are with the smoking. Finally, we got the message through. Um, do people truly believe that vaping is healthier? Is that a belief? There is a perception. Uh, among adolescents and, and maybe adults, but certainly among adolescents, yeah. that vaping nicotine is safer than smoking a cigarette. And 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 you're absolutely right. The, the the we are at a historic low for the for the number of kids that are smoking cigarettes. Yeah. It's less than one percent. But they've wow. switched over to vaping nicotine. And when you talk to them, they'll tell you they do think it's safer because when you smoke cigarettes, you get nicotine and, and hundreds of other substances. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's true. You do. You get you get a lot of other substances besides nicotine when you mm -hmm. smoke tobacco, say from a cigarette. Mm. But when you vape nicotine, you're getting higher concentrations of nicotine, which makes it more addictive more quickly. So um, it's, it's, it's just getting out of control in this country. And it's something parents need to be aware of because mm. it's easily disguisable. Mm. These vaping pins, they can look like a pin, they can look like a USB drive. It's very easy for adolescents to, con to conceal it. Mm. And parents, unless they're aware of these devices, if they're aware of the vaping, uh, it may go completely undetected for a long mm. time. The key also let's let's put a, a safety measure uh, or a safety message out here to everyone who is listening. Don't be fooled. What do you think you're you're breathing in there? Fresh forest air? No. Yeah. You you have basically um, chemicals that are used to dissolve the nicotine or whatever else you put in there. So there are very beautiful beautiful um, X-rays out there where you see perfectly outlined every single branch of the respiratory tree so that as the, the airways get smaller and smaller. Well, mm -hmm. the reason that they are outlined is because they are caked with crap from yeah. vaping. On these young men, they will be in a wheelchair because they will not be able to get to the letterbox in, yeah. you know, five years time. So right. this is a nasty, nasty shit we are inhaling straight in the lungs. Once it is below your, your, your voice box, there is no more defense. That is it. It's in. And here we are. So vaping, 
is dangerous uh, just from from the fact that we are using certain chemicals and, and oils that are uh, damaging the lining of the airway, number one. Yeah. Plus, as you say, you can put far more concentrated substances in there, therefore get a far bigger high, a bigger bang for the buck. And wow, there you are. That's what we, that's what is so fantastic. If you can, if I want to be someone who creates something that makes you really quickly high, well, that's hooks you immediately. That's Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. So get something that is really lipid soluble so that it really quickly goes in the bloodstream and then quickly from the bloodstream into the brain. The brain gets a rush of whatever it is. Bingo. I Gotcha, baby. I gotcha. Yeah, just, and it happens in a matter of seconds. Exactly. You know, from the time that you inhale the substance until it hits your brain, it's yeah. it's it's almost instantaneous. Exactly. Uh, and you're absolutely right about the damage to the respiratory system. And, and uh, whether it's a smoking a cigarette or it's mm. taking nicotine by vaping higher concentrations of nicotine, mm. you really run the risk of doing some long-term damage. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, you know, it's it's weird. So so we've got the vaping phenomenon, and you. It's interesting what you say with the marijuana. I mean, marijuana in many of your states is legal. Did yeah. you see any differences there with regards to the uptake amongst the youngsters? Did the legalization in the in the of cannabis did that make a difference with regards to the amount of addiction that you have seen? Not among the adolescent population, although I think the perception among many young people is, well, if it's legal, it can't be all that dangerous, right. uh, well, which is a fallacy because alcohol is legal, too, and it can be very dangerous. But, you know, I, I, I don't argue with adults about it being legal. That's their issue. That's what they want to do. They, they take the responsibility and face the consequences for it. But the difference that, that I focus on is the neuroscience, is, is, is the adolescent brain which is in the process of developing right. and that's my message to parents your child's brain is in the process of, of developing and maturing and growing that's a brain that needs to be protected protected against any type of an assault from drugs or or substances that can do uh, damage to the brain and and that's what I point out to adolescents your brain is very precious it's in the process of developing so let's not talk about whether the drug is legal or illegal let's talk about what the drug can do to your brain that's really so important and when we say adolescence here uh, let's be clear that this process really goes up until about age of 25 yes. so indeed therefore if you ever hear that someone actually advocates that uh, that alcohol should only be legal from 25 onwards that is where that comes from because if we could just restrict access of younger brains to addictive substances, we would massively slash addiction. If you Absolutely. start drinking later after age 25, your, your brain has more or less grown and it, it has, there is still lots of neuroplasticity happening. Things are changing, yes, but you're, it's no longer as critical and no longer as dangerous for you to perceive that first high and therefore become so addicted and have that memory laid down, isn't it? I, I think that's an excellent point because very few 
people become addicted after the age of 25, mm -hmm. uh, you know, perhaps uh, because of uh, an opiate misuse or, or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But almost all addiction starts in adolescent years. So if we can keep kids away from from uh, drugs uh, and alcohol uh, into their early 20s, the chances of them becoming so-called addicted to a substance goes down dramatically. Mm -hmm. It's those adolescent years that become so vulnerable when most people uh, are going to experiment with drugs if they do at all, and when most addiction starts to set in. And that's why it's so critical for us to get on top of this issue and for parents to get on top of this issue during their child's adolescent years. What about the school system? Are there are the teachers clued up about that? Is there a teaching happening in actual fact in, in uh, health classes or sports classes or things like that? There may be, but but I think there's 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 two problems with that. Uh, still, we're in this just say no mentality, and that mm -hmm. doesn't work with kids. Uh, it never has, and it never will. Um, and and I have talked to school counselors who who really pick up on the idea that what we need to do is focus on the neuroscience and education. Mm -hmm. If in a perfect world, if I were designing it, I would start at the very early elementary years, I would start to educate these children, I would focus on, on neuroscience, uh, and I would and I would reemphasize it every single year, all the way through high school. Um, because what I found in working with adolescents is um, they really do pick up on the education. They pick up on the neuroscience. They're interested in that. They're not interested in, in hearing me tell them it's illegal or that if they continue to use their grades might drop or they might not get through high school or get to college or get a job. They don't believe all of that. But when I talk to them about the neuroscience, that they're interested in. So our school system could use that to be able to reach these kids by focusing on education and the neuroscience, but not just in one seminar when they're juniors and seniors, start in the elementary grades and go through and reinforce it every single year all the way through high school so that these kids really get a good understanding of the development of the brain, the need to protect the brain, and what these drugs do to damage the brain. Mm -hmm. You're so right. You're so right. I could 100%. I do 100% agree with you. And there are actually beautiful pictures out there. There is there's a thing called a functional MRI, which yeah. basically means that you put people into uh, an MRI machine, and then start um, start exposing them with a number of tasks or or you know see what happens when they watch a film etc and it is beautiful to see what lights up in a normal human being and then take people who are addicted to chronic cannabis use for example or chronic speed cocaine so amphetamines use and you see huge holes Literally, the brain looks like a Swiss cheese yeah. where, where there's just nothing happening. There's, right. The brain is just quiet. It just, yeah. And such a thing, would such a picture would, would go a long way. It made me shudder when I was in rehab and I saw that. And I saw the various holes in there when it came to various forms of addictions. And I thought, shit, that's my brain. And... <laughs> 
So, you know, it was, it, it, it rattled me. And, but it rattled me in a scientific way. It was not like, like, you know, we show you now lung cancer, look how it looks. And then the, the, the adolescent at the school class goes, eh, and then they go outside and have a big, uh, have a smoke of cigarette to calm themselves down. So it's not that, but it's, as you say, using science, getting them hooked on science, getting them hooked on purpose. I use that word here to actually learn more about addiction and then take that approach. Yeah, uh, an example that I can give you is uh, when I was working at, at Menninger Clinic on the adolescent unit, I met a lot of young men and women that were smoking marijuana multiple times a day. Mm. And these were very bright kids. Their IQs were above average to superior. But when I saw some of the neuroscience testing that came back on these kids, many times the processing speed of their brain was below average. Their short-term <laughs> memory was impaired and their motivation, that, that, just, that just wasn't there. And they would exactly. admit that. Yeah. So I would, I would try to help them see, um, I would show them a picture of the brain and I would show them the different areas of the brain and what they were responsible for. This area is responsible for speech. This, this area is responsible responsible for coordination. This one's responsible for abstract reasoning and thinking. And then I would show them another picture that showed them where marijuana attached itself to those areas of the brain. And all of a sudden, I had their interest because now they could see, okay, well, maybe this is why my short-term memory isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. Maybe this is why when I'm stoned, my coordination's not so great. Yeah, now you can see it affects these areas of your brain. And what you have to decide is, do you want to continue to, to have those effects? But it was that neuroscience approach that captured their attention. Mm, how good is that? Now, and that is so important because, I mean, certainly here in New Zealand, for example, if you go up north uh, where there's a, a, there's a high Maori population and where there's maybe not so many, so many chances in life, where there's poorer socioeconomic uh, strata of the society, 90, 95% of youth are smoking marijuana. Um, so you're actually talking huge numbers and therefore it is such an important thing to actually address that, to raise that issue and to make that part and parcel of teaching. Now, if that happens in school in a regular way, beautiful, but yeah. we can't really rely on that, is it? I mean, the school system, every country is different. Every, uh, I'm, I'm not holding a great opinion about the school system here uh, compared with the school system that I've gone through. But I think that has more to do with time rather than different countries. I think things are changing. Um, so school system is one side, but it's really what we need to address is the, is the parents, is their knowledge. And that's really where you came in. So how, do, how did your clinic work? How did it work with regards to the, to the involvement of the parents? Did the kids get referred or did the parents get referred or did they come as a family? How did it work? Well, Menninger Clinic is a, is a large psychiatric hospital. It's primarily a psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. But so many of the patients that come into Menninger Clinic, whether they're adults or adolescents, because Menninger serves both populations, mm -hmm. 
70 some percent of them have not only a mental health issue that they're struggling with, they also have a substance abuse issue. It's the co-occurring diagnosis thing. Um, So Menninger treats people from around the world. Uh, Many of them are referred by uh, adolescents. Their parents would refer them. Sometimes a psychiatrist may make a referral. They come from different referral bases. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when they come to Menninger, I worked on the adolescent treatment unit. I also worked on on an adult psychiatric assessment and stabilization unit. Uh, But there are also treatment units where uh, individuals might be in treatment for anywhere from um, six to eight to twelve to twelve weeks. So it's oh, both beautiful. assessment, it's both assessment and treatment, mm. and everyone who comes there is assigned a treatment team. So I was part of a treatment team. I was responsible for the addictions component of the treatment program. There's also a, a psychiatrist that's assigned to the treatment team. There is a psychologist. There is a social worker. There is a rehab specialist. So each patient gets an entire team that is working on working with them throughout their stay. Hmm. Which is fantastic. I mean, that's the multidisciplinary approach that you need. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And what I love to hear is that there is not a limitation on four weeks, which basically means someone has to fork out the money. So hopefully mommy and daddy are a bit better healed um, because, I mean, the traditional four weeks of rehab is primarily because that was the maximum that an insurance company would pay uh, to actually hear that there is ongoing treatment and ongoing things happening. That's really so beautiful. And you know as well as I do that in 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 so many cases, you know, four weeks of treatment mm. barely scratches the surface, and it's really unfair to the person. <laughs> yeah. They need much longer term care, yeah. but yeah. so many times it's dictated by insurance, mm. which means people are really at a disadvantage for the for the care that they need. Mm. So true. And in all fairness, I mean, whilst I had enough after four weeks, I must admit, but uh, and because I thought I had done so much work, hey, I've nailed it. And then people told me, no, no, that's only the start of your journey. I said, oh, oh, rubbish. Come on. I'm a doctor. I know better. I've done it all here. I'm ticked. Look, I'm clean. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Seven years later, I'm still working every day on myself and I enjoy it. (laughs) Well, the research tells us and has consistently told us that the best treatment outcomes are after a minimum, a minimum of 90 days of treatment. Exactly. Uh, You know, but but so many people... Either can't afford it or insurance doesn't provide for it. So they get the best they can out of 30 days. That's right. So it's 30 days and then 90 meetings in 90 days. That's often the flow on that people sort of say when it comes to alcohol or other addiction. But yeah, it is it is very, very hard. Uh, I was blessed to have a very good setup and then I was blessed to actually have not drunken all my brain away. So I was able to suddenly when people guided me in the right direction, I was able to actually say, huh, okay, now I know why I do what I do and then work on that. But that is, I mean, I was mid forties at that stage or late forties. Now this is, there was a considerable amount of, of life experience there that assisted me. Now that does not happen in a 16 year old. 
18 year old, etc. So we are talking, this is completely comparing uh, apples and oranges. So that's why, why I say, wow, that is great to have this continuation of care and this at least provision of services that can help. Well, and I, you bring up an interesting issue, uh, the difference between uh, adult addiction and adolescent addiction. And I address that in my book. And, and in, in, in my mind, there are two big differences. The first one we've already talked about, which is brain development. The adolescent brain is in the process of developing until around 24, 25. Uh, the adult brain after that is pretty well matured. So that's one big difference between adult and, and adolescent addiction. The second difference is consequences. Uh, unfortunately, many adults who are addicted to a substance have faced consequences, sometimes catastrophic consequences. Mm. They may have lost a marriage. They may have lost a job. They may have been incarcerated. These are catastrophic consequences that adults who are, who are suffering with addiction often face. Adolescents, on the other hand, they haven't faced those kinds of catastrophic consequences. They've faced very few, if any, other than, you know, perhaps their parent grounding them or, or trying to restrict them. That's yeah. the biggest consequence consequence they face. And, and that's quite honestly, not really a consequence in their mind. Um, so there are some big differences between adult addiction and adolescent addiction, which then becomes another hurdle for the parent to have to get past. Mm. They have to get past this idea that, you know, the, the child looks at, at, at addiction in a different framework than perhaps the parent might be looking at it. Mm. So true. So true. Mm. So we know they're precious little bunnies. We know that they want to stretch their wings. They want to leave a mark on their life. And we want to encourage them to stretch out. We want to encourage them to make their experiences. What would you say to parents who say, you know, I think they will try it anyhow. So why not let them have their first big drink at home? or have a, a joint at home um, and experience it in a safe environment. What's your take I would on say that? that? I would say that's a very dangerous attitude to take uh, that might lead to some uh, serious consequences down the road. The research will tell us that uh, parents who have this attitude of, well, I don't mind if my kid drinks as long as they drink it, drink in my home. The research tells us that when those kids leave home and go off to college, they end up drinking more. Um, so it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's not a good plan to tell your child, you can smoke marijuana if you smoke it in my house, you can drink alcohol if you drink in my house. Yeah. Um, that's just a, that's, that's a, that's a plan for um, setting up for a disaster. Mm. And yet that was exactly <clears throat> what my parents did. That was exactly what a whole generation uh, of people did. And we need to look <clears throat> at it generational because that is certainly the, the generation before me. They were, they had a very, very different attitude and of such a lack of education. And they just tried to model through and, and get them do what they thought was best. Yeah. And that's that's what we need to accept. So only because we now know so differently, uh, that does not mean to say that we now can blame everyone before us. Ah, oh, look how bad they are, what they have done to us. They have done what they thought was right. 
And yeah. I think that's what we need to, to accept. But we need also to accept that now the onus is on us nowadays in 2021 to actually learn. And that's that's where we've got books like yours to actually say, hey, this is, you know, these are these are the facts. If you, whatever your own belief system is, if you can't just only because you don't believe it doesn't mean that the facts are not true. So, and that's that's what we have seen for what four years in yeah. in your politics over there. So now yeah. Yeah, there is no alternative reality when it comes to drug use and adolescence and yeah. addiction. Okay, that's right. Have an open mind. Have an open mind. Be curious. Learn the learn the information. Take it, absorb it, take it in, and then use it. Uh, you know, for to, to to help your family and to help your child. Mm. Education is the key. Knowledge is power. So uh, a lot of parents, I think, are just afraid of this topic, and mm. it's it's very scary for them. So so they would rather avoid it until they're confronted with it, and that and that and that can be a very dangerous attitude. Mm. I think their best approach is to. Um, learn about it, become knowledgeable, know what the warning signs are, know what to do if you're confronted this with this situation. And perhaps you'll be a little less scared of it and feel more confident that, that if it comes around, you'll be able to deal with it. <laughs> Avoidance is, is, not a, is not a good plan. <laughs> Let me play devil's advocate though. We in New Zealand or probably around the world, we can say that probably a third of the population is chemically addicted. So even if you're cranking that down, make it one in five, make it 20% of the population chemically addicted with alcohol and nicotine, probably the highest up there. Yeah. Um, part of being an alcoholic is denying that there is anything wrong with you. Yeah. So therefore, if you look at alcoholics, adult alcoholics, 95% who are drinking dangerously will tell you, no, that's absolutely wrong. Joe down the road, now he is an alcoholic. I've seen him in the gutter. Me, I'm just a very social person, um, you know, and, and I've got so much stress, you know, those two bottles of wine in the evening. I, I just need that, it's, that's me unwinding. Yeah. So you've got a parent like that, and I was that parent. So here you go, I was full of denial. Um, how the hell do you expect me, fucked up in the head as I was, um, being able to direct my adolescence. So I think there is there is the thing that that we need to learn to love ourselves, which means that you have to take a long, hard look in the shoulder about your own behaviors and about your own addictions. Yeah. And then <laughs> move from there because, yeah. And that's very difficult to do because when you're in the midst of an addiction, it's hard for you to see clear. It's hard for you to to, to reason. The only thing that's really important to you is the addiction mm. and getting that feeling that you, that you crave so much. Mm. Um, and and you 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 may not even be aware that your child is smoking marijuana or is drinking. You are so consumed with your own addiction mm. that you can't see the addiction of your child, which is sitting right in front of you. And I think there must be so many families out there where this holds true. Yeah. Uh, it is, uh, it must be huge. And it is the, it just shows how, prevalent addiction is and how multifactorial the whole the whole topic is you can't just have 
one picture in your mind it is it comes it's a big addiction is like a chameleon it comes in all shapes colors disguises and it is important that we open ourselves up and i guess you guys who are out there who are listening that and watching that on youtube there's a good reason that you're watching that so either something in yourself uh, has started to trigger that you actually might your own behavior might not be so great yeah. or you might actually finally have gotten yourself clear and, and then clear up there and now you see the flow and effects of on your youngster yeah um, maybe since we are talking adolescence, we should talk about the genetic side of things. Um, there is, uh, there are various figures being being bunted around, but there are probably fifty plus genes that might contribute to being uh, becoming an addict, to have a higher chance of yeah. having addictive behavior. Um, what is your take on that, uh, Rick? Well, I think I, I think. Again, the science, the research tells us that there is a genetic component to just about every disease that's out there. Mm -hmm. uh, a woman who has a history of, of breast cancer in her family is is more vulnerable to, to getting breast cancer. Mm -hmm. If you have diabetes in your family, you're at higher risk of getting diabetes. Mm -hmm. The same is true for any addiction. If that runs in your family, you are at a higher risk. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. Uh, a woman who has breast cancer breast cancer in her family doesn't mean she's destined to get breast cancer. Uh, but there is a genetic component to just about every disease that's out mm. there, including mm. the disease of addiction. Mm. So if you have addiction in your family, you are, what does that mean? It means you're at higher risk, which means you need to take perhaps a different set of precautions. You need to be aware of the vulnerability. And, and what happens when we know that we are aware of the vulnerability? usually we'll make changes. So if we know that we have a vulnerability to diabetes, that might change the way that we eat during the day. If we know that we have a vulnerability to addiction, we're probably going to be very wise to stay away from things like marijuana and cocaine. Uh, if, if there's alcoholism in our family, uh, we know that we're vulnerable. Doesn't mean we can never drink. It just means we need to be aware that that's a risk factor for us and to, and to, and, and to, and to take care uh, so, that, so that it doesn't get out of control. Rick, your points are so important and so valid, but I want to put a little bit of a of a of glimmer of hope there. For example, in my in my life, I'm pretty certain that my mommy and daddy have given me their genes, and I know that there's alcoholism in my family, and I am hundred percent sure that I have passed on my genes to my children. So I've got two young, beautiful boys. Uh, were 19 and uh, 20. Now, they have got the genes. And they can blame me for that. But what they also have, they have seen me in seven years of sobriety and recovery. They have seen how nowadays it is virtually impossible for my wife and me to fight because we have learned to communicate. 
They have seen how to be authentic. They have seen how to be honest, how to live with integrity, all these kind of things, how to take it on the chin when you stuffed up and how to make amends. They have seen all that because I have been doing living amends. I have lived a life to show them that, I, that you can live a different life and that that life is cool. So equally to actually have those genes might actually be a blessing in disguise because it forces you to be open to your children. It forces you to address mindfulness and all these kind of things. So I'm playing at devil's advocate here. I actually want to say to parents, guys, if you got your act together, uh, please do not feel guilty about the things that have happened in the past right now. You guys can be role models because you have you have dealt with your past and you're still dealing with it. And, and you showed it your children. That's so much more powerful than the bloody few genes that are that are uh, influencing your children. That is such a great point. I really like that because although um, we do inherit a, a genetic predisposition to say a substance or to addiction, um, and we have no control over that. It comes in the genes. But we don't just pass along those genes and that predisposition to our children. We also pass along to them the benefits of everything that we've done in treatment and recovery. So they get the benefit of that as well. So the examples that you were sharing with, with what your children are seeing now in terms of your behavior, in terms of your interaction, in terms of how you deal with, with, with issues in, in your own life, that all is a byproduct of everything that you've gone through, including the treatment. So, yes, we pass the genetics along, but we also pass along something far more important. And that is everything that we learned and everything that of, of how we grew as a result of the treatment that we went through and overcoming the addiction that gets passed on to our kids as well. Exactly. That's a very powerful point that you made. And to come full circle to your book uh, what do you think for you as a parent if you're listening now as a parent if that is the main driver for you what do you think was to happen if you actually show your children that you read that book of crick that you read my books that's the sobriety because i've got heaps of, of action plans in there to deal with various problems in your life etc introduce you to mindfulness introduce you to solutions to very likely problems that will hit you in your life sooner rather than later um, how about you actually developing such a maturity that you a start reading these books and then actually discussing them with your children yeah. and maybe discussing examples that you read in a book. You might read a vignette in, in there, a little story in there where you think, huh, so why not take such a story and discuss it with your children? Yeah. You know, that would be such a powerful thing. Do that around the dinner and make it normal. Make it normal. That's, that's, um, that's so beautiful. Rick, may I ask you, how many of your clients of the adolescents that you see, how many of them do you think would come out of a quotation mark, good background, 
where there's no major trauma, where there is no, you know, I mean, too many times addiction is labeled where you think, oh, yeah, look at that family. No surprise that the child is addicted. Look at them. Um, yeah. Is, is addiction really an issue of socioeconomic background? What is your take on that? My take on that is that no child is immune from being captured by addiction. Um, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter the income that your family has. It doesn't matter the church that you go to. It doesn't matter the school that you go to. All children are at risk of getting captured by substance abuse and using substances. There, there are protective environments, but no child is totally protected. And I think on top of that, there are two issues that are propelling the substance abuse that we see in the adolescent population today. One is the availability of drugs. These kids know that these drugs are readily available. Uh, for example, when, when we ask seniors, how easy is it for you to get marijuana? Nearly 80% of them tell us it's very easy if they want to find marijuana to find it. 30% of them will tell us it's easy for them to find LSD if they want to find it. Mm. And over 80% will say, getting alcohol is no problem if I mm. want it. It's easy. So the availability is one factor that fuels the substance use. The other factor, which is just as important, is do these kids look at these substances as being harmful? Mm. And the answer is no, they don't. When we ask seniors, how harmful do you think it is smoking marijuana nearly every day? Only 30% of them would say it's harmful. So the drugs are readily available and these kids really don't see the harm in it. And, that, and that's like a perfect storm when you combine those two, availability and low risk of harm perception. Plus, we need to mention that most children who are going out there buying drugs don't have a little chemical testing kit where they just put the so-called LSD <laughs> or their Mariana in there and say, mm, that's, oh, look at that, 14% THC. Well, that's a nice little batch. Uh, no, they say, oh, that, that's Mariana. Oh, cool, let's see. Yeah. We see that, uh, that Mariana here is from now and then laced with pee, so methamphetamine yeah. or laced with heroin, laced with other things. So suddenly you're getting hooked, no end. So because you're getting basically shit from the street, that's yeah. what you get. Yeah. Uh, in About 20 years ago, there was a study in the UK where people went out uh, on a Saturday night and bought ecstasy tablets in clubs they just went around had a good time oh yeah give me one of the ecstasies and then they took them to the lab and examined was what what was in those so-called ecstasy tablets and there was anything in there from cheap talcum powder and nothing to yeah. ketamine 200 milligram a date rape drug for for all intents and purpose to all kind of shit we had a few years, oh, probably now, again, 15, 20 years ago, we had one case in, in here in, in New Zealand where a young man uh, died in a nasty, nasty way because he had been given something to make him high. What he had been given was a diabetes medication. 
So his blood sugar had dropped down. Yes, he felt funny and dizzy. Yes, of course, because there was no blood sugar there. And he basically ended up seizing and, and had yeah. uh, convulsions and he fried his brain and passed away. And that is and, something that kids do not know about. And, and when I was doing groups, I would try to educate them on the fact that uh, most of these drugs that they pick up on the street, they're not pure. You know, they, they've come down their chain from, from where it was produced to one dealer to the next dealer to the next dealer. And somebody along that, that route is adding something to it, usually to make more money. So, yeah, you know, th there is no purity in these street drugs. And from now on, then there is purity, and that is an, uh, an absolute disaster because what you think you can take, quotation mark, and suddenly you get some poorer strain or purer uh, amount, you get so much more bang for the buck. And yeah. if that is Mariana, well, that's probably not too bad. But if it is, happens to be heroin or anything like that, and you suddenly get a massive overdose, that's your child gone. It could be deadly. Exactly. It could be deadly. Exactly and, right. Uh, but this that, is all information that you guys are now accumulating. You listening this far into this interview, look what you have learned and how cool is that? So now how about getting Rick's book and reading a bit through and, and taking one example or one chapter or one story in there and having that discussion? Yeah. Not in a, I think you're taking drugs. How dare you? You might... Oh, and so on and so on. Um, I don't need to, to role play here, but more in the sense of, you know, God, I read this cool book by this dude. And, you know, let's talk about what do you think about that? And actually ask their opinion. And guess then what? Don't, don't ask an opinion and give your own. Ask an opinion and shut the hell up and listen to your child. How yeah. about that? <laughs> well, and that takes practice. Uh, yeah. You know, we're, 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 we're really good at listening to other people's words so that when we're talking to our children or we're talking to each other, we hear the words. We're not so good at hearing the feelings behind those words. Uh, but that's a skill that every parent and every adult can learn. We mm -hmm. can learn to not only hear words, we can hear feelings behind the words. And when we can do that, that that's very powerful. Mm -hmm. But I, I would encourage everyone to to uh, to learn as much as they can about adolescent substance abuse. And you can begin by getting a copy of my book. It's not going to cost you very much. I think mm -hmm. if you like reading it on the Kindle, which yeah. a lot of people do, uh, it's 99 cents. Uh, if you like the paperback book, uh, that's going to cost you a few dollars. But, but, but absorb the information in it. And if you're married, have your spouse read the book too. And then the two of you talk about what you've learned in the book. Yeah. Be on the same page, learn the same information, read the book, give it to your husband or your wife and have them read it and then spend some time talking about it. Learn the information, learn the warning signs, know what to do if you're confronted with this. These can be powerful tools of, of knowledge and information that hopefully will help you feel more prepared to feel more confident but most important, to know that there is hope out there that if you are have a child who's using substances, there is a way out of this. Hmm. So important. Rick, I know you've got a copy of your book there. Show it to us so that people recognize it when they see it on, the, on the internet. Yes. Yep. The Addicted Child. It is a cool book. I've read it. Uh, it's well worthwhile, guys. And for 99 cents, we should 
oh, come on, for Christ's sake. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> there's no excuse. Yeah, and, and I priced it because I wanted it to be uh, affordable for everybody, you know, that, that because really this is about education. This is about about people becoming better informed, more confident. So for 99 cents, if you want the Kindle version, it's yours. If you prefer the paperback like I do so I can write, make notes, highlight and things like that, yeah. uh, it's just going to cost a few dollars. No, that's fine. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for raising the awareness thank you so much for the work that you're doing and have done it is so important that we demystify and alcohol uh, addiction addiction in general mental health in general and i think we all need to recognize that we are we are all at risk as far as mental health problems are concerned it is yeah. normal that things go pear-shaped in our lives the chance that you are having a depressive episode in your in your life is one in three. Okay, yeah. the anxiety disorder is nowadays one in five in, in younger people. So let's be clear about that. Uh, mental health problems are normal. The more you can learn about them, the better it is. And addiction is nothing different. It is just a disease of your reward uh system and of your laying down memory system it's just skew with and once you actually know that once you actually deal with that once you take the emotion out of it and actually look at it scientifically there's so much that you guys can do so yeah. do not give up there is hope there's absolute hope you can expect that your youngster will get his or her act together. Um, you know, there's an 80% success chance out there, given the right, the right team approach, given the right help. So you can expect a recovery, but you need to play a role. Your youngster need to play a role and he will only do so if you show the right guidance, show the right understanding, show the love that is there for him. So love your youngster, hate the addiction, that's absolutely fine. Hate the behavior, that's absolutely fine. But love, love the person that is hiding in there and that is too scared to come out. And by you being able to show your love, uh, you, you move mountains, okay? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was very well said. Don't just see the addiction, see the mm. child mm. Um, and, and see see what can be, see see the possibilities that are there and uh, and, and, and have some hope, hope that uh, comes from treatment, hope that comes from intervention, uh, because you're, as you said so well, your child uh, and your family can move through this, but it's going to require some work and it's going to begin with education. Rick, you were saying earlier on in the interview that many of the patients that you treated indeed were dual diagnosis. In other words, they had a, a clearly outlined uh, psychiatric disease in addition to the problem of addiction. Can we talk a little bit more about that? 
Yes, certainly. Um, And in my book, I have an entire chapter devoted to assessments. What are the assessments that you should get done if you suspect your child is using a substance? Uh, Certainly, you need an addictions assessment, but you also need a a psychological or a neuropsychological assessment because certainly not every child who's using a substance has an underlying mental health issue, but a lot of them do. And as a parent, what you want to do is either rule in or rule out whether or not your child has an underlying issue that might be contributing to their substance use. Many of the kids that I worked with who told me that they were smoking a lot of marijuana, when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking marijuana, the number one answer that came back was, it helps with my anxiety. So that's just one example. For other kids, it might be depression. Mm. It might be having an experience at school, perhaps being bullied. Mm. Um, uh, For some, it might be an emerging personality disorder that's Mm. starting to come through. Mm. Uh, But kids are no different than adults. If we have what I call an intolerable thought or an intolerable feeling or an intolerable memory, we don't want to sit with that. We want to get relief from it. And once a kid finds that the relief is in the substance, that's what they're going to turn to. So the the, the point that I'm trying to make is get a comprehensive assessment to see if there is an underlying issue. If there's not, that's great. You can rest assured. If there is, then you need to understand that your child is going to need treatment, not just on the marijuana use, but also the underlying issue. Treat the marijuana, but don't treat the anxiety. You might be able to keep your kid away from marijuana for a short period of time, but they're going to relapse because they still want to take care of the anxiety. And they have learned that the way to take care of the anxiety is to turn to the substance because it works quick. And that's where you then breed cross-addiction. Because even if you, let's say that you take the Mariana away, you actually create a perfect world where there is no Mariana. Now, what do you think will happen? The anxiety is still there. They still want to numb the anxiety, stop the anxiety. Well, guess what they drink? Alcohol. You take the alcohol away. They will find something else that will stop the pain of the anxiety attack. Because they have have not learned that other ways, productive ways, how to deal with an anxiety attack. They don't, they have not learned, uh, they have not learned, they have not learned (laughs) how to surf the wave of anxiety or the negative emotion wave. It is, they, that is what is missing. So they will, they will hit the sugar. They will hit whatever it is that they feel a relief coming through. And so that, brings th- up, that brings up the other issue that's in my book, which is what we call process addictions. There's chemical addictions, which are the alcohol and the drugs. There are process addictions, which tend to be behavioral mm-hmm. addictions. And the examples that I have in my book are eating disorders, self-injury, gaming, cell phone use. I've had children, uh, adolescents, who were smoking marijuana, and they were also self-harming themselves. They were cutting themselves. Both are, as you pointed out, both are coping skills. I can take the marijuana away from them, but, but if I do, 
what do you think is going to happen? The self-injury is going to spike up. So if you have a child who has both of these disorders, they have a, 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 a chemical addiction, say marijuana or alcohol, um, and they also have a process addiction like self-injury, you need to treat both. That's the bottom line. If your child has more than one disorder, you need to treat both. Unfortunately, many times that underlying issue doesn't get diagnosed. And if it does get diagnosed, it's sometimes not treated. We want to focus on getting the kid off of marijuana. Uh, but, but, but it's really important to deal with all of the issues that your child might be dealing with. So if they're dealing with anxiety, you need to treat that as well. And it's hard because certainly in my generation, there is still quite a bit of the, oh, take a concrete pill and grow up kind of thing. Boys don't cry, all these kind of cliches. They are still very, very strong. So here we are suddenly being told that actually there is a huge issue out there with regards to emotions, something that we never accepted for ourselves, never seen from our parents, yet suddenly we are supposed to be masters of that topic and dealing with our children where we only just accept that maybe things are changing a little bit. So there is yeah. a huge learning curve there for you as a parent if you're in your 40s and 50s. And that's why you rely on the professionals to give you the assessments, to do the testing, to give you the information, because, you know, parents are not experts in addiction. They're not uh, experts in mental health. They're not experts in diagnoses. That's why you turn to the professionals and get the assessments done that I recommend in my book. They're there to help you do the assessments, get the information, and ultimately to come out with a treatment plan and a course of action. Mm. Those are the professionals that you need to rely on. You're not the expert. You're not expected to be the expert, mm. but you can rely on the experts to guide you and get you the information you need and the recommendations that will help you and your family. Mm. And it means taking action and getting involved, yeah. not putting the proverbial ostrich head into the sand. No, it is... And I saw that in, in Capri Hospital where I was, we, I was there for four weeks and every Tuesday night was fun night, mandatory. You were not allowed to do, to stay home, etc. We had to go out. Now, in order to get out and do bowling or whatever we did, um, we had to be, you know, carted there. And it was parents of previous addicts or previous addicts themselves who got their shit together and were now volunteering to actually take us out and were playing with us uh, bowling. And it was uh, showing us that you can have a fun life yeah. when without drinking, without using. Yeah. But it was, and it was beautiful. And, and one of the, the young drivers, uh, she only had been out of rehab herself, maybe for a year and a half or so. And her father was, was another driver, but he was always there with her. And it was, it was a team approach. So the two of them lived recovery in a very active and beautiful and gorgeous way. And I remember, however broken I was, I saw this father um, of a child that was only a few years older than my children, and I saw such a different behavior. 
I saw him spending time with the children, something that I had not done because I was far more busy emptying wine bottles. So, and it is that, so get involved and, and show an interest and learn and listen, listen to the professionals, but also listen to your child. Listen to this young, beautiful person that is suffering because that is there. They have got the same shame and guilt and because they have no life experience, that is all feeling so overwhelming for them. That is just, we need to accept that. And whilst we might have a a different stance because our upbringing as a child was very different, we might've had far harsher relationships with our parents, maybe less love, maybe just just different. Um, That was then. The past does not equal the future. You have got right now, you have got the chance of turning things around. You might have had a belting, literally, when you were a youngster. Um, You can choose maybe a different approach. Now, you can try an approach of love, an approach of actually just, just lying there, being there. I remember my, my oldest, his, his first girlfriend dumped him and he was there sobbing his, his eyes out and, and I'm Mr. Fix-It. I want to fix everything. I'm a doctor. Yeah. I, I, I can fix things. And for me, it, I realized then that was not a moment of fixing things. I just had to be there for him. And I was lying in bed. He was crying there. I was lying next to him. And just being there for him at that moment, that was probably one of my biggest achievements, that I kept my bloody mouth shut, that this was not a time for me to fix or be there as the doctor, but I was there as a support. I was there as someone who understands. And yeah. that, is, that is so powerful if you guys can do that. It is very powerful and learning the difference between when you can fix it and when you can't fix it, when you should fix it and when you shouldn't fix it. That's, that, that's a skill that, that uh, is, is difficult sometimes to know because we want to protect our kids. We want to, we want to save them from the suffering that sometimes we've gone through ourselves. Uh, but on the other hand, we want to protect we want to prepare them for life as well. And we want them to learn from our experiences and, 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 and being able to be, I think, as you said, to be present with them in the moment can be so powerful. And who knows, guys, you might even learn something from your children. You're, God you're forbid. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's a growth. It's a growth. There's no way around it. Uh, you will not be the same person after you have engaged with your child and you, because you both will transform, hopefully both of you into a better person, a stronger person, a person that in the future can take on challenges in maybe a more productive way and in a less scared way and terrified and overwhelmed way. And how beautiful is that? And for every parent out there, the message is there is hope and you can and you can become that kind of a parent. You can do that. It takes practice. It takes commitment. It takes dedication. But you can do it. Brilliant. Rick, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute honor to interview you. And um, again, thank you very much for all the hard work that you're doing there and that you're making yourself available to talk to me 
in your time because we both have this passion of making this world a little bit better one interview at a time one book sale at a time and and if we just keep working on it my goodness maybe this world can be a little bit better in due course hey eh? I think so. Thank you so exactly. much for inviting me and thank you for, for sharing in the discussion and for participating with your own own insights. I think, uh, I think it made for a, a much better conversation. So thank you for your contributions. Absolute pleasure. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye. Bye.